Good morning, everybody. I don't, I don't know how many of you remember the, um, uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, but there's a moment where Charlie Brown comes into the auditorium to take over the, uh, the leading of the, the Christmas play they're putting on. He says, well, it's good, real good seeing you all here. And I feel like saying that, and I, um, so I just did. There you go. <laughs> uh, my name is Dave. I'm leaving my name tag on in case you forget, but um, I was here about six weeks ago. Um, you all are welcoming me back. I don't think any of you had any say in me being here, but I'm here nonetheless and, and delighted to be. That's, that's true. Some of you may hold sway. <laughs> so when I was here um, about six or seven weeks ago, still outside, <clears throat> um, I, I brought a word about um, the trustworthiness of the Judeo-Christian worldview. I made a few awkward jokes. Um, I, I didn't, they weren't awkward enough to get uh, blacklisted from coming, so here I am. And uh, the conclusion of the talk last time was um, that G it, the, the conclusion of the talk pointed us to Jesus and said that Jesus is the answer um, to the experience that we have as, as humans. And I, um, I concluded by saying that we have good reasons to trust the, um, the Christian narrative of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so this week I wanted to go into some of the good reasons for believing that the resurrection is true and I will avoid the awkward jokes. Maybe, maybe. Um, in preparation for this talk, I, I took on a number of um, debates, listening to debates, watching debates, which is something I, I've always enjoyed doing, but I sort of did it in super overload mode in the last couple of weeks here, debates on the resurrection of Jesus, um, which, interestingly, um, I heard points uh, from the opponents that I actually thought were pretty good points against the resurrection. And, and I, as I heard them, I would feel kind of a quick little pang of, of doubt or insecurity in my heart, um, especially if the, if the Christian didn't have a good response and they just sort of glossed over it. But I'm fortunate to have treasure stored up in my heart. Um, that's the way that Mary put it, uh, Jesus' mother. She took these little bits and pieces of things that she picked up along the way watching her son grow up and she treasured them in her heart. And we can all do that. We have treasure available to us to be stored up in our hearts, to always be ready, as Peter says, um, when a challenge comes or when somebody challenges the, the conviction that we have within us. And that preparedness, that assurance, um, even when we face moments of new little nitpicks at our faith, um, it's like if you've got this wall of, of surety of the things that you believe, you don't want to let one little pebble being thrown at that wall crumble the whole thing. You can think about that wall that you've built up and say, no, no, the challenge that we're hearing right now or that I'm facing right now, it must have a logical conclusion because the doctrines of Christianity are well and they're safe and they're sound. Wise Solomon put it, he said, a, a, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And likewise, I think a, a faith that's grounded in uh, truth and the truth and the way and the life um, that's, that's, three, that's three strands. It's not easily broken. And that truth, that's the person of Jesus. Um, in him, we find peace, we find wholeness, we find joy and blessed assurance. And that's good news these days and, and every day. Um, 
you can tell by the, the type of topic that I, I like to cover that I'm more of a facts guy than I am a, a feelings guy. But there's something about that feeling of dwelling on the assurance of salvation and the assurance of the message. There's something about the feeling of dwelling on those things or pondering those things that can be itself a shield in times of trouble. I'm going to tell you about a, a dream I had a number of years ago. And this is not a dream to which I ascribe any eschatological meaning. Um, I'm not one to, I'm, I'm a skeptic if somebody says that they're having a dream that's prophetic or something like that. Um, so I'm, I'm very careful about that sort of thing. But I'll tell you a dream that has no influence or, or, or importance whatsoever, except that it caused me to think and it caused, sort of stirred my imagination. I was outside in the stream and I saw a spiral staircase come down out of the sky. And that was it. There was no heavenly chorus. There was no, you know, angels coming to and fro or, or an appearance of Jesus. But the significance, what I took that image to be in my dream was I said, this is it. This is the moment. Jesus is coming. And the, the feeling that I got was not just a joy, but it was, um, uh, it, it was like a finally kind of feeling. It was, it was a feeling of relief, like coming up for air after you've been underwater for a long period of time. Um, and there's, <clears throat> there's something about that feeling of, of finally, the relief of being put through something in life or being, or just living on this earth with the brokenness and everything and the, and knowing that peace that's going to come. We sang, there's several of the songs that came up this morning that had lyrics <clears throat> that sort of tied into that message of finally. Um, the Grey Havens is... Um, an adorable little husband and wife duo. Uh, they're, they're musical artists that I encourage you all to look up and listen to them, the Grey Havens. They're, they're beautiful, and uh, they have a, a knack in their songs for um, drawing on that feeling, both in their melodies and in their words. They have the, the ability to, <clears throat> at least for me as a listener, bring me into that feeling of the, the, um, the at last, you know. They, in fact, they even have a song. <coughs> Excuse me. They have a song uh, titled, At Last the King. That's it. It's just, you know, a beautiful title. Um, but Ruth, if you could just put up the first slide here for um, the song Forever. I, I bat battle back and forth between trying to play the song for you somehow, like my phone onto the microphone or, or singing it for you, but I'm not going to put you through any of that. But we're just going to look at the lyrics and, and read through them together. In the song Forever, they say, Look, all I know is I'll be changed in a moment when I take that step when I'm called back home. No end, I'll know. Because forever is in my soul, it's in my veins, I think we know, that the future is going to be so bright when you turn my way, you in that sentence is God, when you turn my way, it's going to fill my eyes. Because forever is in my soul, it's in my veins, and it won't let go. Their next song that I'm going to share with you is called Gone Are the Days. And uh, this song is sung from the perspective of being there, of arriving on the day uh, of the Lord. And it says, we'll sing, gone are the days when we cry, cry. Here are the days when we fly, fly. All our hopes will turn to sight beyond the veil in the morning light. We'll sing, gone are the days. And those first two songs are from an album that they put out a couple years ago called She Waits. Um, which the she in that is is the church. She waits. She waits for what? She waits for that day. And then this next song is called Paradise. It's from an album that's coming out in a couple of months here. It says, There's got to be somewhere I got to be going that's better than this. 
Yeah, I only know I got to keep going to find what I've missed. Because all this time, and I still, I can't get over dreaming of such a pretty, pretty uh, melody. Paradise, just say, I'm getting closer because I'm longing to find home, find home. So Jesus said it best. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And if he stopped there, it would, be, it would be a true statement. But he goes on. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Uh, last time I was here, I, I centered around uh, a particular phrase, which is, Christianity is the best explanation for the way things are. And the way things are is just a, just a summation of reality. The way things are, the things around us, things that happen. Um, Matthew 22, uh, Ruth, if you could put up the slide. We know that Jesus uh, calls us not just to love God with our hearts and our souls and our strength, but he calls us to love God with all of our mind. Uh, and I think that there's, there's something to it more than just what that does for God, that it brings him pleasure. But as I said, it also is a shield for us in times of trouble. And it helps us to fulfill uh, what 1 Peter 3.15 says, which is to set Christ apart as Lord and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the hope that you possess. And the Greek word for give an answer there is apologia or apologia, and that means, you know, give a defense. And that's what I spoke on last time. Uh, I told you my story that God used apologetics, apologia. Um, he used guys like C.S. Lewis, uh, Lee Strobel, my pastor back in New York, who was ready to give me an answer when I asked him questions. God used them to bring me to a place where I had no choice um, intellectually and, and spiritually but to bow my knee to him as Lord and Savior. And, and what we did last time is we, as believers, we worked backwards from convictions that we already hold to see that they are trustworthy. Um, convictions like the Bible, uh, the God of the Bible exists, that he created everything, that he added intent and purpose to everything around us as, as clues. Um, we know that the Bible is, that we have today is accurate of the content written by the original, you know, some odd 40 authors and what they wrote to us. Um, I shared an acronym that Trevor has used in, in uh, past messages, FACES, F-A-C-E-S, uh, as reasons for believing that the Bible is true. Um, you can go back and, and review that there. And uh, we landed on the fact that sin is real and that we are guilty of it. And uh, I did a pretty darn good Ray Comfort impression um, to remind us all that if you consider yourself a good person, you're, you're not. Uh, none of us are. We're fallen. We're broken. We have a rap sheet of sins. And if we're standing before a holy God with that rap sheet, we've got a fine to pay. Um, but Jesus walks into the courtroom, and he offers to pay our fine for us. So here we are back to Jesus. Um, in him is forgiveness of sin. <clears throat> in him is the door to eternal life. If he is who he claimed to be, and if he truly rose from the dead. Paul says, our faith is in vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So we haven't yet established, or at least I, I haven't in the time I've had with you so far, whether our alleged savior is factual or just a mythical superhero. So we're going to step through a process today called abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning. It sounds like a, like a core workout, but we're not going to walk out of here with six packs. Um, 
if you don't already have one. Uh, but I will say that it's not mutually exclusive to be schooled in philosophy and also have a body like Mark Wahlberg in the 90s or, or Mark, Mark Wahlberg today. Um, but abductive reasoning is, is a process that, as an example, it's what cold case detectives do. They've got a set of clues and there's probably no new evidence coming in and they have to look at this set of evidence, they have to look at the set of facts and decide what's the best explanation for all of these facts taken in a totality. There's a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, or Jim if you're pals with him, the way that I'm not. And Jim uh, Wallace is a well-known, at least in Christian circles, a well-known author and speaker and apologist who runs a ministry called Cold Case Christianity. He was a cold case detective, I think in LA for decades. Um, and so he, uh, his story is kind of like Lee Strobel where he started as an atheist or an agnostic. Um, somebody challenged him to read the Bible and consider what it said. And he looked at the facts of the Bible and the, the narratives of the eyewitnesses. He looked at them from a perspective of a cold, cold case detective. And he decided that Christianity was true based on his assessment with those tools that he had. So, um, you know, he spent years uh, on, on teaching and, and writing circuits, um, helping others believe that too. And there's another guy named Gary Habermas, um, who is a PhD in history. Um, I think he's got a few other degrees as well, who for the last 40 years has been writing and researching on the topic of uh, the resurrection. Um, Trevor, our dear Trevor, had a chance to interview him back when he was at Maranatha. So if you have or download the Maranatha.tv app, uh, there's a section called Conversations, and you can see the, the conversation that Trevor got to have with this guy, Gary Habermas. Um, I was going to do another impression, but I, don't, I think we'll skip that. <laughs> He's from Michigan, so he sounds like a guy that y you would sit down with to like have a beer and talk about football, but instead, like this guy knows everything there is to know about, about um the history of the Bible and specifically the resurrection. Um, but uh, he, essentially what Habermas has sort of given the world is um, he's reviewed and or interviewed like 1,500 some odd scholars and pieces of work from all across um, Western civilization over the last 100 years or so. And he's assembled a collection of 12 historical facts um, that are on their own largely uncontroversial and seemingly innocuous because uh, none of them on their own proves the resurrection of Jesus. And for that reason, 75 to 99% of scholars in the appropriate fields, including scholars who are secular, non-Christian, um, even atheist scholars, they have no problem granting <coughs> and supporting the following 12 facts. And remember, Christianity is the best explanation for the way things are. These 12 facts are included in the way things are. They're included in reality. So I'm going to share the 12 facts with you here. Uh, but first, I'm going to uh, give you one important rule that when we're kind of assessing these facts, we have to know that because 75 to 99% of scholars in the appropriate fields believe that all of these facts are true, we can't use an explanation for fact A that undermines or contradicts one of the other facts. These facts have to be taken in totality. So here they are. <clears throat> Number one, Jesus died due to the process of crucifixion. Um, Gerd Ludemann is a German scholar and a harsh critic of Christianity, but he said, the fact of the death of Jesus is 
the fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable, uh, despite hypotheses that are out there of a pseudo-death uh, or a deception. And then Paula Fredrickson, who's a um, non-Christian New Testament scholar, she's got a PhD in history of religion from Princeton, she says, the single most solid fact about Jesus' life is his death. He was executed by the Roman prefect Pilate on or around Passover in the manner Rome reserved particularly for political insurrectionists, namely crucifixion. Fact number two, he was buried. That's, there's not much else to say there. Uh, fact number three, his death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope. So their leader had died. They were in no position to uh, take up arms and take a principled stand against Roman authority or Jewish tradition. They were despaired. They saw their leader humiliated and, and, and killed on a cross. Fact number four, shortly thereafter, the tomb was empty. Dun, dun, dun. Now this is the most contested fact. This is only at 75% agreement among scholars, but that's okay because I think the empty tomb can be inferred as a requirement for many of the following additional facts. Number five, very soon after the crucifixion, Jesus' disciples had experiences that they believed were appearances of the resurrected Jesus. So you notice the wording there. These, these secular scholars can agree that they had experiences that they believed to be appearances of the resurrected Jesus. Um, Josephus, the famed Jewish, uh, Roman Jewish historian, he attests to this, but it's also all throughout the New Testament, which, according to what we reviewed in, in my last conversation with you guys, the Bible is trustworthy. So we can take what the New Testament says, we can take that to the bank. Is that it? That's a phrase, right? Um, we're going to, uh, Ruth, I'll have you put up 1 Corinthians um, 15. Here's what the, here's what the Bible says um, about the the things that happen at the end of Jesus' life. It says, For I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as though to one born at the wrong time, Paul says, he appeared to me also. So the, the appearances of a risen Jesus is right there. Paula Fredrickson, the, um, uh, the non-Christian New Testament scholar I mentioned earlier, she puts it this way. She says, <clears throat> I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say, and then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. She's not saying they didn't either. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But as a historian, I do know that they must have seen something. So we'll leave that one. Point number six is that their lives were transformed as a result, even to the point of being willing to die specifically for their faith in the resurrection narrative. So point number three was that when the crucifixion happened, the disciples lost hope and they were despairing and they weren't in a position to take up any sort of principled stand. And here we are 
you know, relatively short moments later where their lives were transformed to the point of being willing to die for their belief that Jesus had rise from the dead. Now, <clears throat> people die for wrong things all the time. They do. Um, people will, will bring themselves to death's doorstep for wrong reasons. They'll die for delusions. They'll die for lies if they don't know that they're being fed lies. Um, 30 some odd years ago, right down the road here in Rancho Santa Fe, Heaven's Gate, um, this guy, Marshall Applewhite, convinced 30 or 40 people that a spaceship was trailing the Hale-Bopp comet and that these people could be taken up to a higher plane if they shedded their mortal body using phenobarbital and cocktails. And they did it. Um, and they died. And you think of um, jihadists who, who think that suicide bombing is going to bring them into favor with Almighty God. People die for the wrong things. But common sense tells us that nobody will suffer martyrdom for something they know to be a lie. There's a caveat. We know that people die for lies that they know about. For example, there were people who died lying about hiding Jews during the Holocaust. They, they protected those Jews with their own lives by lying about hiding them. Uh, we know that a mother might die while lying to protect her child. But these, these are examples uh, of self-sacrifice. They're not martyrdom. They're two different things. These are uh, situations where they're protecting someone who's still alive. Martyrdom is quite the opposite. They're not protecting their own lives, and likely, if they get killed, their, their buddy next to them in the early church is probably next. So they weren't protecting anybody. They're certainly not bringing any glory to anybody. They're, they're uh, anybody living um, on earth. They, 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 they're dying humble deaths. Um, and they knew that their message might not survive. Their message might die along with them. But their convictions were so deep about the truthfulness of the resurrection that they could not deny Christ, even if it meant their own death and the, potentially the death of the message that they brought with them. Point number seven, the resurrection of Jesus was taught very early, soon after the crucifixion, and was at the core of the message taught by the disciples in the first century church. If you remember our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul began it by saying, for I passed on to you, passed, passed in past tense, I passed on to you, I've already passed on to you, as of first importance, so the core of the message, what I also received. Christ died, was buried, was raised, and appeared. Now, there are some historians who will tell you that the, the first Corinthians letter is actually Paul's second letter to the church and that the first is lost. Uh, but either way, first Corinthians was written around 53 to 55 AD to a church planted in Corinth about five years prior to that. And so the bottom line is that this is an, a very early church creed so he was passing on to them this church creed, which was already circulating in the church. So the bottom line is that the, the resurrection of Jesus was at the core of the message that was preached in the early church. Point number eight is that they preached this message in Jerusalem, a very Jewish place, and the site of the reported events. So you think about it. They are preaching about Jesus being resurrected in, in or around Jerusalem, and they're doing it in or around Jerusalem. So that means they were surrounded by folks who could have given firsthand accounts that would um, uh, deny the truthfulness. Maybe somebody would say, hey, yeah, I, I watched uh, that guy die on the cross, and I saw him go into the tomb, and I can show you where the tomb is because he's still buried. But that wasn't happening. 
there was confidence to preach this message in Jerusalem where these things had happened because of reasons like the fact that 500 people saw him at one time, most of whom were still alive, which means you could go and ask them, what did you see? Point number nine is that the church was born and it grew. This might seem like kind of a small matter, but it actually, it can't be overstated. Um, Jesus was not the first claimed Messiah. We've, we actually get an account in Acts 5. Um, Paul's former teacher, Gamaliel, who was a very well-respected uh, Jewish um, teacher of the law in that time, he was reminding his, his people to calm down and, and chill out and just wait it out. He said, remember Thaddeus and his 400 followers. Remember Judas the Galilean and his revolt. What happened to their followers when the leaders died off? Their followers fell away. The movements died and fizzled out. So Gamaliel said, so let this die and fizzle out, or it won't because it's from God and then we can't stop it. So the natural outcome of a, of a crucifixion or of a, the leader of a movement dying in a very humiliating way is that that movement tends to fizzle out. As we said before, the, the disciples after the crucifixion were not in a position to take a principled stand against Roman-occupied Palestine and the Jewish tradition that was alive and well in that area. So something happened to change that fact and to cause these men to not only spin off a small sect, but to grow a global movement. And they did it not by sword, they did it not by violence, they did it with truth, they did it with word, they did it with love, and they did it with deed. Unlike any other movement that's ever grown, um, especially in hostile territory like the early church did. Point number 10 um, is similar. Orthodox Jews, who now believed in Christ, made Sunday their primary day of worship a dramatic shift from their culture's long history of Saturday Sabbath keeping. This isn't just unthinkable. It's a blatant breaking of centuries of tradition born out of God's giving of the Saturday Sabbath. And breaking Sabbath could mean death. We have lots of accounts of people breaking Sabbath in the Old Testament and dying for it. And the final two points, 11 and 12, um, are they're similar in that they are both accounts of uh, skeptics who became believers, but there's two different ty types of skeptics here. We've got, first of all, James, Jesus's unbelieving brother. He became a Christian due to his own experience that he thought was the resurrected Jesus. How do we know this? Well, prior to the crucifixion, here are the characterizations of uh, Jesus's brothers and, and family. In Mark 3, we have Mary and Jesus's brothers coming to try and find Jesus and bring him home because they thought he was crazy. Um, and then in John 7, we have an account where Jesus is, it's, uh, John says, so Jesus' brothers advised him, if you are doing these things, if you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds, for not even his own brothers believed in him. That's James before the crucifixion. Then his brother dies on a cross, and then something happens, because what we find in Galatians 1 is we find uh, Paul, he says, uh, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and to get some information from him, and I stayed for 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles. I only saw James, the, the, the Lord's brother. So Paul goes and sees Peter only and James, the Lord's brother. And then we know from history, uh, Josephus, uh, Hegesippus, Clement of Alexandria, they all record, these are secular sources, they all record James dying a martyr's death. Um, he was stoned to death for 
not recanting his belief in his brother's resurrection. So it was either the crucifixion itself that did this to Jesus' brother or something else. And then finally, this is my favorite point, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, the most zealous persecutor of followers of the way, also experienced what he thought was a post-resurrection appearance of the risen Jesus and was convinced as to become a passionate believer. So we all know Paul. He wrote 13 of the New Testament books. But here's Paul before that. He was a Pharisee who was trained under Gamaliel, one of the most influential teachers of the law of his day. And Paul put himself uh, in these terms in Philippians 3. Paul says, If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from a people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. He had everything. But, he says, these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. So any of us who have taken an accounting class, we know that a balance sheet had, has assets and it has liabilities. And they're polar opposites from each other. One of them brings the balance up, one of them brings the balance down. Paul experienced both a radical and a complete reversal of lifelong convictions. He took these things that he treasured and considered to be um, assets, and he put them in the liability category because of Christ. He, he finishes, he says, more than that, I now regard all things as liabilities compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul had it all. He had the power, he had the prestige, and he had the safety of being someone who was devoted to the old covenant, um, the old covenant, and he threw it all away to, became a, to become a Christian, which means Paul did not become a Christian to gain these things. He had them, and he, did, he considered them to be liabilities now. That's something. Uh, Greg Kokel, one of my favorite um, apologists who, who lives and works today, um, he says this, Note, none of these facts, a dead man, an empty tomb, claimed sightings, changed minds, none of these facts is supernatural in itself. Individually, they've each happened in other times and in other cases throughout history. That's why scholars have no trouble agreeing on these particulars, especially since the evidence supports them. What historians don't agree on is the best explanation for these facts pertaining to Jesus. But there aren't many options. And Greg is right. I'm going to give you a handful of the best uh, naturalistic explanation for these facts given by skeptics. I'll start with the first. It's the copycat theory. None of this is true. It's all a fiction, and it's all just made up based on myths of dying and rising gods that have been around for centuries uh, once Jesus came on the scene, if he came on the scene at all. Now, if you sort of traverse in the circles that I do and read the stuff that I do, you hear this theory thrown out there a lot. Um, uh, there's a documentary that came out right around the, the golden age of YouTube called Zeitgeist um, that I fell uh, prey to, where it's got three different chapters, and one of the, each chapter is on a different topic, but one of the chapters, it puts out this theory. It says, hey, you know that Jesus guy that the whole Western you know, church believes in? He's just a, a recycling of Horace and Osiris and Dionysus. They were all dying and rising gods, and they all had 12 apostles, and they all changed water into wine. And I watched this. There's like no footnotes. There's, no, there's nothing backing this stuff up, but it was, 
produced in such a way that I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I been believing all these, you know, 12 months that I've been believing this stuff? Um, my pastor was very uh, gracious to take me through it and show me all the, the mistakes therein. But you can recall from, from my last talk that we have um, early and, um, and uh, heavy textual uh, evidence for the scriptures that we have today being what the original writers wrote and that they wrote them early. We've already re reviewed some of that. But you, you compare that with these reportedly earlier pagan myths these prototypes, but there's no reliable or clear accounts of these prior to 100 AD. And in fact, it was suggested, it was first suggested that Jesus is just a copycat of these only about 150 years ago from today. Um, and since then, the scholarly conclusion has been that the Christ myth is considered fringe and it's dismissed by most scholars. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that you know, we, we go and explore a cave somewhere and we find a papyrus that contains a myth of Dionysus uh, written, you know, on papyrus that's from 200 BC. And it says that, it, that Dionysus had 12 disciples and changed water into wine and died and rose from the dead. That still doesn't mean that Jesus didn't also do those things. And that, that might sound like a little bit of a stretch, but I'm not sure how many of you know this. Um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, three short stories were written about a giant ocean liner, the biggest of its kind, sailing from Europe to the United States, but hitting an iceberg halfway through its journey, cracking in half, and then several people dying because there weren't enough lifeboats to save everybody. Now, when we hear that, we think of Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet and Titanic, because that's exactly what happened in the case of Titanic. But these stories were written 10, 20, 30 years before the Titanic took place. Just pure coincidence, wild, like, I don't even know if you call it guessing, but just fiction that happened to also come true. So it is possible that somebody could come up with a fiction that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, and for Jesus to have also taken place, um, uh, his life to have also taken place. This theory also breaks our rule about um, one explanation not undermining one of the other facts, because... Point number one, if you remember, 90% of scholars agree that Jesus died on a Roman cross. It would also negate the point about Paul's conversion, because Paul is a lifetime Jewish Pharisee, and he would not have been influenced by pagan myths. So let's move on to another theory. Mass hallucinations, born out of desperate, desperate grief or hysteria. These aren't just mass hallucinations. Paul states there were 500 people that saw him all at one time. It's a massive hallucination. And hundreds of people having a mass hallucination at the same time is psychologically, scientifically, and just plainly untenable. It would be akin to, to all of us in this room falling asleep right now and then interacting with each other in a dream and then waking up and be like, wasn't that great? That water slide was incredible. Um, it doesn't happen. It's, it just doesn't happen in science. So um, you, you can sort of people will, will put out like, oh, there are groups of people who say that they saw a, an alien encounter, or there are groups of people who saw the Virgin Mary coming out of a cloud. But that's kind of like what my kids do, where, you know, my son will be like, I saw a monster in the bushes. Clara, you saw the monster too, right? And she'll be like, yeah, I saw a monster. It's groupthink. It's like somebody who's, who's got a really strong influence, and then the groupthink sets in. That can certainly happen, but with Jesus, there were multiple different people at various stages over 40 days having these appearances, and they all line up. Plus, hallucination or seeing a spirit of Jesus 
That doesn't say that he rose from the dead. It actually confirms that he was dead. They're, halluc excuse me, they're hallucinating him or they're, or they're seeing maybe his angel or his spirit or something like that. Not the resurrected Jesus, which means there was no cause to celebrate. There was no cause to start a movement about a physically resurrected Jesus. We wouldn't have um, skeptics becoming believers if Jesus st was still in the grave. For example, James, he grieved for his crazy brother being dead and being humiliated in his death, but he didn't grieve a failed Messiah. So there, it doesn't make sense for James to have become a Christian if his brother was still on the ground. And all of our accounts of the resurrection are characterized in Scripture as being physical. We saw Jesus um, grilling fish and eating it with his disciples. We saw a lot of touching, touch my side, touch my hands, I'm real, I'm physical. We saw him walking to the road to Emmaus, breaking bread with the guys there. During a finite 40-day period of time, Jesus physically was on the earth. Plus, we've got the empty tomb. So let's move on from that one. The next one is that the disciples stole the body. Now, we're all familiar with this one because it's in Scripture. It's given in Scripture as one of the, um, the, uh, the cover-ups that the, that the Jewish leaders put out there, that the disciples stole the body, and that's why the, the grave is empty. And sure, that plugs the, the hole in the dam that's left by uh, the point that the, that the tomb is empty. But it leaves a gushing hole over here at the point of the martyrdom of the disciples. Because as we said, you know, these guys spent their lives tirelessly and selflessly teaching a lie and then being persecuted for it all the way to the bloody end. Au contraire, mon frere. Uh, Roman and Jewish leaders had every reason to squash this rumor, and they, they certainly would have tried hard to find the body. But that doesn't matter because the tomb was guarded by trained soldiers. We sang about it this morning. These guys were the, the first century equivalent of army rangers or navy seals, and we're meant to believe that fishermen and tax collectors and day laborers came in, got past those guys, opened the grave, rolled back the, the stone, and stole the body. It does not compute. So let's look at the, uh, the next one on our list, which is the look-alike robot theory. This is from famed armchair philosopher Max Van Hook, my seven-year-old son. This was his theory. He said, Dad, what if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead? What if it was a robot that looked like him? I said, but son, they didn't have robots back then. And he said, but what if they did? <laughs> so I had nothing to say to that. He might be right. But this was his version of, an, of a theory that does exist in, in fringe scholarship, which is it wasn't Jesus that was resurrected. It was his twin brother. Like, you can't make this stuff up. Well, Max did, but the twin theory, you can easily dismiss this by, by looking at James, the real brother of Jesus, becoming a believer. He wouldn't have become a believer if Jesus' twin had come on the scene and be like, I got this. Hey, I'm Jesus, everybody. And who would do that? Jesus was just killed by the Romans. His brother's not going to step out and say, well, round two, here we go. So we can dismiss that one. So we're, we're left with one more uh, naturalistic theory, which is the swoon theory, which means that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted. Um, it sounds sort of silly, but a lot of people believe this because in Islam, this is what is taught. Jesus is revered in Islam as a prophet. His mother Mary, or Miriam as they call her, is also revered. But their narrative says Jesus did not actually die on the cross. He was made to appear as though he had died. So it's taught in Islam, and it's taught in these fringe theory groups. But you think about this. This is, first of all, it's by no measure a resurrection. So again, it's not something to celebrate. It's not something that's a cause for martyrdom. 
um, the soldiers' lives, the people that were in charge of making sure Jesus was dead, their lives, their lives were at stake. If they didn't do their job, they would die. That's why they would break the legs of people on crosses, and it's why they stabbed Jesus in the side to make sure that he was dead. But let's say, let's say he did survive it. He would have died again. You know, like there would have been a day later in the world where Jesus would have died, and then you'd, have, you'd be stuck with the body of Jesus, and you'd be starting all over again. So this one does not compute either. Note, there are many naturalistic theories that are put out there. Um, none of them seems to cover very many of the facts at all. And the fact that there are so many theories out there and there's not a single one of them is put out as the champion theory means that these 75 to 90% uh, of scholars who agree that each of these facts is true, if you ask them what makes sense of these facts, mum's the word. They have nothing to offer you because these naturalistic th uh, theories, the best explanations, um, they fall flat. There's nothing else. But actually, there is one. It's this one. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to Paul. That's a pretty good explanation for these facts. I don't see any other explanations. Nobody has put out any better explanations. So I'll conclude in the same way that I did last time, which is essentially this, that, again, the Judeo-Christian worldview is the best explanation for the way things are. It's the best explanation for reality, the facts around us, the feelings we have, the longing for a forever, the fact that we know that there's something about this world that is broken and wrong and we belong somewhere else and, and you know, sin has twisted things. Everybody with a, with a human heart acknowledges those things and Christianity best explains it. This makes Christianity an intellectually fulfilling worldview in addition to being a hope worth dwelling on. Ours is not a blind faith. God has given us excellent evidence for the fact that he has given us himself. And that's it. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is in your word. Um, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. And we thank you that you've given us... Um, uh, not just a blind faith, um, but a faith that has power and it's got teeth and it can help us cut through um, uh, the brokenness of, the ex of, of our experiences day to day. We thank you that we know that you sent your son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die the death that we deserved, and to be resurrected from the grave so that we can expect a resurrection ourselves if we trust Jesus and bow our knee to him as Lord and Savior. 